So um, the event in the church calendar called Epiphany, traditionally, uh, that means when the Christ became manifest or visible to Gentiles, non-Jewish people. So the text is the text with the Magi, the three, uh, the three um, uh, philosophers who came and visited Jesus. Uh, they saw the star in the sky. They had all the whole interaction with King Herod and all that kind of thing. We see them in all the nativity scenes. And so this idea of epiphany in particularly refers to this event. In general, it refers to the manifestation of the divine, the seeing, the becoming aware of, sometimes in an instant, in a single moment of the divine. And uh, the, the lectionary text gives us Luke as one of, the, one of the options here, this passage in Luke where we see the 12-year-old Jesus. And this is the only story we have of Jesus interacting as a child. And so what's happening in this story must be very important for the writer Luke, the gospel writer Luke, who scoured over and interviewed and talked to as many people as he possibly could while writing this gospel. He only included this one story. And I think that's really important and, and really relevant when we see the picture of what Jesus is doing. He, in part, is asking questions. And he's not just asking questions as a curious child, although that could be part of it, but he's asking questions as a part of the tradition that he's growing up in and the tradition of his parents as highly observant Jewish people. And so this morning, I want us to talk about the relationship between asking questions and epiphanies, becoming aware of the presence of God. If we take a moment to stop and think about it, questions propel our movement in life. There are all kinds of important questions, questions that seem off limits, scary questions that are the things that propel us in life. Here's, here's a few ex examples. If, if you were engaged in something, making a big life decision and somebody asks you, is that that decision, the decision you're making, is that important enough for you to base the next several years of your life on? To move here, to start this job, to start a family, to marry that person, or uh, any number of other things. What about this question? Who are you? What defines you as a person? A question that was really important that I was asked when when I was um, attempting to start some uh, to start some pretty big ideas around uh, equitable uh, wages and clothing and, uh, and and sources of clothing, um, I was meeting with an entrepreneur, and he he said the question that people are going to wonder from you are who are you to do this? 
Have you ever thought about that for yourself when you were engaging in something that felt a little bit ambitious, punching a little bit high for you and you thought, who am I to do this? How, how, what kind of credentials do I have to, to be able to do this thing? Or, or maybe you can think of, after just being with family, some, some questions that feel kind of off limits, like, why did you vote for Donald Trump? Or why did you vote for Hillary Clinton? Or here's another one, touchy one. Are you vaccinated? Right? Questions really have a lot to do with how we live our lives as human beings. Some scary questions too. Do you love me? Do you think I'm right? What is it like for you to be with me? Questions can be incredibly invaluable. The right questions can shape your life in really powerful ways. And and the dialogue that can happen between thoughtful question and answers are an essential part of a robust Christian faith. Now, when we look at this passage... I want us to keep that in mind because it highlights the importance of questions that can produce this type of faith and this type of life. Here's what I want us to to be thinking about. I'm going to come back to this a few times. That right now in our lives, that there's, there's a lot of quick answers. There's a lot of people ready to give us answers, maybe quicker than any time in human history. Um, But what I want us to, to, to wrap our minds around and grab hold of this morning is that waiting on an answer that is slow to come is bettering, better than a shallow answer that arrives when you want it to. That's what I want us to be wrapping our minds around and thinking about, that waiting on an answer that is slow to come is better than settling for a shallow answer that arrives when you want it to. So in, in verse 41 here, as we, as we dive into this scripture, it says that every year Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of Passover. So right, right out of the gate, Luke is continuing to tell us something that a lot of people needed to know from his perspective about Jesus' family, and that's that they were carefully observant Jews. So every year, Uh, a very observant Jew, if they had the possibility, would travel to Jerusalem for different festivals, Passover being the most important one, Uh, but also there was the the, uh, Pentecost, uh, the Festival of Weeks, where we see that huge event that happens in Acts 2, and the Festival of Booths. And so we see that Jesus's parents are coming Uh, to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. And then in verse 42, tells us that Jesus was 12 years old. And it says they went up to the festival according to the custom. So that the age of Jesus is important here because this is before bar mitzvahs and things like that, if you're familiar with that, which were at 13 years of age. But this was an important time for a boy that they would become in a Jewish home the son of, a cov- of the covenant. So it's when they became responsible, it was the age of accountability to fulfill Torah, the law. 
So this was the time that's happening here. So none of this is happening in a vacuum. There's a specific context that Jesus's family is living into. And I just want you to, want you to keep that in mind. We live in a culture very disconnected oftentimes from tradition. We live in a culture where we think we're gonna find answers devoid of context. And I don't think that that works. And so I just wanted to highlight that as we get into this text here um, that uh, Jesus's family is observing the, the, are observing this important tradition. So after the festival is over in verse 43, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. <laughs> I've thought about this, this time uh, here in the scripture a lot uh, because one thing that occurs to me when I read this every time is like, man, wouldn't it be nice? I'm sure there were more hard things than not to live in that ancient world, but wouldn't it be nice to have such a tight-knit community that it took you like a couple of days to realize like, nobody's got my kid, you know? Like, that, that, like you got that many aunties and uncles and like grandparents and stuff that it's like you don't need like 360 app on your phone to like chart where your child is or whatever, or you're not worried that they're like running out into the street somewhere or, or whatever, but that you've got like this caravan of people and one day on the trip back, Mary's like, you know, Mary was probably with the women, like the entourage with the women and the younger children, and Joseph was probably with the men and the older boys because that was kind of how they traveled. And at some point, Mary probably like sent word to Joseph like, Jesus is with you, right? And Joseph's like, no, I thought he was with you. And then they're like, uh-oh. <laughs> and it would have been Joseph's fault, just to be clear, okay? So... Definitely would have been Joseph's fault. Um, but uh, just kind of like, hey, you know, Mary and Joseph, you know, be a little bit more careful with the Savior of the world. Like, keep a little bit more tabs on him, right? That's, this is why we can't have nice things. Um, but the, the, the situation progresses, and we see in verse 45 more about what's happening with Jesus. This is kind of where the crux of this idea of questions and the importance of it and the epiphany come into play here. So let's read this together in verse 45. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And I, and I want to stop right here. So um, in... Jewish education, it was normal at this stage to be asking questions as a part of education, not just like randomly asking questions, but an intentionally cultivated, and it exists to this day, an, an intentionally cultivated syst a systematic way of learning to ask better and better questions so that in uh, sort of the kindergarten age of, of learning in, uh, in formal Judaism at the time, the students would, be, would start by memorizing the scriptures. They would start by memorizing the Torah, the first five books. That was the beginning of education. That's how they learned to read and write and, uh, and think and all that was through the memorization of these texts. But 
the, the next step had to do with starting to engage in a intellectual dialogue with what was there by asking a lot of questions. So again, there's a context and a container in which this is happening that Jesus is living into here. It's not just out of nowhere like, oh man, this kid keeps asking us a lot of questions. And um, this this, uh, to, to illustrate this further, I want to share with you uh, a story uh, by this guy named Jonathan Sachs. He's Chief Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs, just so you realize that. And yes, it's as impressive as it sounds, his accomplishments. Um, so he shares this story about uh, a Nobel Prize winning Jewish phys- physicist, Isidore uh, Rabbi. And once explained that his mother taught him how to be a scientist. And he said, every other child would come back from school and be asked, what did you learn today? But my mother used to ask instead, Izzy, did you ask a good question today? In the yeshiva, the home of traditional Talmudic learning, the highest compliment a teacher can give a student is you raise a good objection. You raise a good question. So this question and answer dialogue taking place between students and teachers was was and is a normal part of a robust faith in Judaism. And the reason why, one of the reasons why is because we, we're all, we all, our lives are all guided by questions that we ask, but some questions don't guide us very productive places. You can have running in your subconscious questions that just don't do you very much good in life. And this culture of Judaism knew that, and so they wanted to teach their students how to ask better questions. And so Jesus was found to be asking the type of questions as a boy that astonished and blew people away. So um, these sort of quick answers um, aren't, weren't going to do it. And so they had to learn a different way to process the information of the scriptures. And, and I don't know about you, but that's different from the type of faith that I grew up with. And that's why I'm stopping here for a moment. And I want to talk about this for a moment is the importance of the types of questions that we ask. One of the things I'm very passionate about for Christ City and the future of Christ City is to cultivate a container, a place, a church, a body of Christ where we learn to ask better questions together, where we learn to realize because you stand on the outside of something and ask a basic question and come to a quick answer about it, it doesn't mean that you understand that thing. And so what part of our job here at Christ City in 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 our location here in the city is to create a space where we can begin to ask better questions. You ask better questions, you get better answers. You gain more wisdom in life. You maybe get more epiphanies. You get more encounters with the living God when you're willing to suspend what you think you know and learn to ask better questions. What's, what's the current delivery of answers in our culture? What, what's the way we get the most answers right now? 
Social media, iPhones, Twitter, memes. I probably memes are the number one way that we get answers right now. What does that tell you about our culture? That we're screwed, yeah, pretty much. Like we need, that, that is the catechism of our world today. Catechism is a question and answer. So you're being flooded with memes and people are flooded. I saw one that had a picture of this like, a, like old school oil painting looking and it looked like a giant hand holding the earth. And it basically said like, don't worry about global warming because God's got it. And this is the easy answers to complex questions that we're getting about not just global warming, but every single subject. That's the, that's the main thing going on. This is the opposite of the type of robust faith that we could develop if we were to have better questions and we weren't satisfied with little memes and sound bites and even headlines. I was standing in line at the Walgreens uh, right around the corner and there was a headline on the commercial appeal and it said um, that this local uh, nonprofit was threatening to sue uh, 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 Shelby County Corrections or 201 Poplar, I don't know how to, how to say it right, to sue the Shelby County Jail system for their bail bonds practices. So like the amount of money and who has to pay when they've got a court date and all that kind of thing. And there was an older man with his wife standing behind me. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. And I grabbed that paper because I wanted to read about that. And the guy behind me, he saw it and he said, huh, that sounds like a threat, doesn't it? Uh, to his wife. And, and uh, she said, well, what do you mean? He's like, well, the, it's clear the liberals are, are trying to make it so that criminals can just run around on the streets. It's like, oh my gosh. Why don't you read the article, dude? You're like, you've already got a conclusion from five, a five-word headline. And I just was like, I'm Jamin. I was doing self-talk. Like, you're in the Walgreens line. You have no relationship with this person. This is not a time to engage. This will not be a, a productive conversation. And I grabbed myself some gummy bears and I uh, proceeded to check out and I did not engage there. <laughs> but the point I'm trying to mic, uh, make here, Mike, I'm holding a mic, uh, is that when we learn to wait on answers that are slow to come, it's going to be better for us, our community, and the world around us than settling for uh, uh, a shallow answer that arrives when you want it to. That's the thing. The answers that just come when you want them to and they, they taste really good for that moment, it's, it's kind of like cotton candy. It tastes great and then it dissolves in your mouth and provides you with no nutrients and nutrition. Easy come, easy go. Right? You get an answer easily, it's not going to last long. It's not going to help you in life. This, this same rabbi, I've got a, a few more things that I want to bring up in this article that I read uh, about him, about him uh, talking about the importance of questions uh, in Judaism. He says this, in Judaism, to be without questions is not a sign of faith, but a lack of of depth, okay? So, um, 
several people in the, the, the millennial, I've, I've sat as a pastor over the past several years with several people in that millennial generation uh, specifically, but some outside of it, some older, who have said, you know, like, I got this question and this is the answer I came to and that means that, you know, I'm kind of done with the, whole, with the whole church thing. And I get that and that's, that's fine. And I think that really my criticism is not even towards them, but it's my passion, the criticism that I have from the church that raised them to think because they had these questions that it would lead them to say, now I'm stepping out of the context, I'm stepping out of the, the thoughts, the ideas, the symbols about life, the interactions with God that raised and nurtured me, and I'm going to ex nihilo, out of nothing, define the world for myself. I think it's impossible, first of all, because all you're gonna do then is be catechized your question and answers through the memes. That's where your worldview's coming from. And so I'm very passionate about us creating a place where better questions can be asked so that we can get better answers. As uh, Rabbi Sachs said, that we can get a deeper faith through those questions. He goes on in this article to name a few important questions through the scriptures that were asked. Abraham asked, shall the judge of all the earth not do justice? Moses asked, oh Lord, why have you brought trouble upon this people? Jeremiah said, you are always righteous, oh Lord, when I bring a case before you, yet I would speak with you about your justice. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all the faithless live at ease? The book of Job, the most searching of all explorations of human suffering is a book of questions asked by man to which God replies with four chapters of questions of his own. This is our Bible, a book of questions. Now here's my admonition about questions though. There is a type of questioning that does not desire answers. It's based in cynicism. It's based in a self-protection. So if I pose the question and you can't answer it, it proves I'm right to not do the hard work of engaging in those areas in life. You understand what I'm saying? Because you can't answer my question about this aspect of your faith or the way that you live, I'm absolved from having to interact with that idea. And if the, wor- if the world burns, so be it, because you can't answer all of my questions. The people in the scriptures never were stopped in their hope to know God, to know a better future, a better life, to see God, to see the Savior, to see heaven on earth by unanswerable questions as just illustrated here. My final a quote from uh, Chief Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs. He says this, far from faith excluding questions, questions testify to faith, that history is not random, that the universe is not impervious to our understanding, that what happens to us is not blind chance. We ask not because we doubt, but because we believe. When you ask God why, 
When you ask God why, what that comes from is the source of hope within you that things matter, that answers could come. I'm not up here telling you that it's all about just asking questions. We ask questions because we desire to know the answers. We desire to have hope fulfilled, but quick answers oftentimes don't do that. Easy come, easy go. So that's why we are not left with Jesus simply or only, I should, I should say, asking questions, but that in verse 47, it says, everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. We ask good questions with the hope of being provided with good answers. So in verse 48, it says, when his parents saw him, they were astonished. They were astonished to see him there after all these days. Oh, and his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Imagine how angry Mary was, like spending three days looking for her 12-year-old son. I'm sure she was relieved, but it's kind of like, you know, I don't know if you ever read Llama Llama Red Pajama when the llama's like yelling and then the mama comes up and she's like, I'm very disappointed in you, but she's also like, just trying to, you know, act disappointed because she really just loves the little llama. Anyway, um, Mary was letting Jesus know, you know, that he was responsible for his actions and that this is a real life, like this is, this is real life here, right? Um, I, I love, uh, you know, the, the, the purity of Jesus's answer, but it also, it reminds me a little bit of, of my son Xavier because he doesn't know, he doesn't know shame yet. And so like when you ask him a question like, Xavier, did you throw all that stuff on the floor? He's like, yeah, I did. <laughs> He's like really happy to just tell you what he did regardless, regardless of what it was. But, but Jesus answered in verse 49, he says, why were you searching for me? Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? But, but get this, so when Jesus says this, didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? This is the epiphany moment. This is, the, this is a moment again where, okay, where is 12-year-old Jesus? Oh, he's blowing away the teachers of the law with his questions and his understanding at 12 years old. And then his parents come and find him and they're scolding him. And he's like, nah, dude, like I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. I'm in my father's house. So he's equating himself as the son of God. This is an epiphany moment. God revealing himself through the person of Jesus. And listen what the next verse says. Verse 50, what's it say? But they did not understand. They did not understand what he was saying to them. Then they went down to Nazareth with them. He went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart. They asked Jesus a question. Jesus asked them a question. Didn't you know this is where I would be? And uh, like I was, was saying earlier, like we were talking about earlier, sometimes we need a different question, not an answer to the current question that we have. Jesus reframes the question here that was asked of him and gives a, a better question. And, and what stands out to me this particular time in looking at this passage is two things here from their response. 
is that they did not understand and that Mary treasured these things in her heart. They didn't understand and yet Mary treasured the information, the event in her heart. That word treasured in the Greek, uh, diatirio, means to keep continually or carefully. Okay? What do you do with something that seems important to you? You get an answer that you don't understand. What do you do with that? How do you, how do you act? What do you do with that information? Do you say, well, I'm going to go get an answer I do understand? Do you try to forget about it? Do you try to look for uh, another explanation that makes you feel good and sets off endorphins in your head because it goes along with what you already thought or believed? There's another option that Mary chose. She treasured it, which means to keep continually or carefully something that she didn't understand about the nature of her son who was prophesied to be the Messiah of the world. She treasured it. She kept it continually. What our culture wants us to do, and I don't care where you fall politically or ideologically, it's the same message. You're either in or you're out. You either think the right things or you think the wrong things. You gotta have an answer to every question about what you think about everything going on in our culture, every hot button topic. You better have an answer because we need to know where you fall. Are you in, are you out? Are we crucifying you and are we uh, excluding you or are we bringing you into the fold as long as you ascribe to our ideas? And yet there's a third option here. There's a third option, an option that produces a life of robust faith and eventually produces a life of wisdom to treasure, to keep continually or carefully. You ever thought about things you don't understand, questions, big questions you don't have answers to, to think about treasuring that question? It would take over 18 more years for Mary to understand the answer to this situation of who Jesus was. Good answers don't come quick most of the time. If they do, there's probably been a whole lot of work done prior to that, even if it wasn't on your part, before that answer comes. So in last verse here, it says, and Jesus grew in wisdom and stature in favor with God and man. And this is a, a particularly puzzling verse. I wonder if it's why the other gospel writers steered clear of this. Because it shows Jesus growing like an ordinary human being. And I would be remiss on Epiphany Sunday with, well, it's not a, it's a Sunday we celebrate Epiphany, to not end here with Christology, the study of the nature of Christ. Jesus grew up as an ordinary child would. And the question in the first 300 plus years in early Christianity that people wrestled with as they looked at the texts of the New Testament, as they wrestled with their faith, was how do we understand the divinity and humanity of Jesus? And different schools of thought emerged and some of them 
like the the uh, do, uh, Docetists, they came to the conclusion. They decided Jesus must have only appeared as human and was actually fully divine only. He looked human, but he was actually only divine, okay? That, that was the only thing that made sense to them, okay, to, to think that way. And then there was another very popular movement, movement called Gnosticism, and they saw Christ as this divine being that uh, took human form to lead humanity back to the light, doesn't sound too different. And yet the context of this view was in that, that they believed that material existence was flawed or evil. Okay? So that they even believed that there was like a, a different sort of supreme hidden God and that there was an, an evil lesser deity that created the material world. Okay, that's responsible for creating the material universe. So the idea of salvation could only be some kind of esoteric thing um, that didn't affect the body, the human, the human body. And so these were two of the, the, the popular views of how, how do we deal with this person of Jesus and this, this idea that he was somehow divine and, 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 but was a human who lived. And so, so, so many people were trying to a- ask this question and answer it in a way that really made sense to them. And in uh, 325, there was a council that came together in, in Nicaea, and that's where the Nicene Creed was formed. In 325, it was later abridged, amended in 381 to include even more things because they realized it's still, there's still some things unclear here. And so this is one of our statements of faith. And uh, here's the part about Jesus here on the screen. It says, we believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only son of God, eternally begotten of the father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made of one being with the father. So the oldest orthodox understanding of the nature of Christ is that he is both fully man and fully God. But part of the reason why I bring this up is to affirm there are answers to questions we ask, but also that there, it took over 325 years for people who lived in the time and the time after of Jesus to, through lots of struggle and experience, to come to this type of conclusion. And guess what? When I took some time to read over these things this week and I I looked at the different ways that uh, some of these early Christian thinkers who were labeled heretics about the nature of Christ and the, and the nature of Jesus as a person in Christ. Uh, I was like, oh, that reminds me of this person's preaching or that person's book, like these her, her, uh, heretical ideas. Like, oh, so yeah, this, these thoughts are difficult. <laughs> the, the, the answers are not so easy. And to say, oh no, I get it, fully God, fully man. Just try to, 
just try to put that into different contexts and see how easy it is. And we wrestle with these things because that produces a faith of wisdom. When we live through these questions, um, the great fourth century Christian theologian, St. Jerome said this, the springs that water the church, the springs that water the church are the mystery of the Trinity and the mystery of Christology, the nature of of Christ. The ongoing attempt to understand the meaning of these mysteries presents Christians the opportunity to continue to ponder the wisdom of God's ways. It's a quote by uh, Randy Roshkover, the uh, theologian. So as we end this time in the scriptures here, what I want to encourage you, church, and what I think the work that, part of the work that we're doing as a church that's really important is to learn to ask better questions, deeper questions, not be so anxious that we got to have answers to all of these things going on. Don't, don't listen to people. Let me pick up. Let me let me end by picking on uh, on a liberal position here. I, I saw a, a tweet last summer, or some, maybe it's Facebook. I don't know. But this girl said it was during the George Floyd protests, and she said she was single, and she said like, anybody who I date after this, I'm going to ask where you were during this time, right? Like, what were you doing, you know? And I'm like, oh gee, I like I'm married with three kids, but I still feel like. What, you know, what's going on uh, here? And, uh, you know, and then I thought about it. I'm like, I've been wrestling with these things my entire life. <laughs> and and, and you're, you're trying to throw the hammer down at this, this one single moment. So Mary and Joseph, they didn't understand, but they treasured them. Treasure the questions, cultivate the questions, and better answers are going to come. Let's pray.